0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the repetitions and compositions. We'll think about repetitions and periodicities in various contexts and compositions. Can non-repetitive music be aesthetically pleasurable? Are there sub-processes that repeat across domains and why? Can certain computational compositions be choreographed better with parallel repetitions? How does one know definitively when a chess match is drawn? Why do certain ragas repeat a lot more in musical compositions? Is repetition hardwired in our brains How is repetition in time different? How is repetition different from harmony, balance or symmetry? And what are the deep, open questions in this context? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Dev Chottopadhyay. He is a theoretical computer scientist based in TIFR, Mumbai. His area of work is primarily complexity theory. Professor Parthu Datta. He teaches in the Department of Arts and Aesthetics in JNU, New Delhi. He works primarily in music studies and dabbles in urban planning and urban history. And Dr. Anand Vedya. He's Professor of Philosophy and Director of Center for Comparative Philosophy at San Jose State University in California. His area of interest is philosophy of mind and logic and epistemology. So, uh, Anand, why don't we set the ball rolling with you with what the word repetitions means to you um, and to the given your training and your work perhaps from a philosophical standpoint, and if one were to ask the question both at a phenomenological level, what we see in the world and how things manifest and things tend to repeat or recur or have a certain kind of periodicity, does it also imply something about the ontology of the world and how things might be? Is there a reason why things tend to be repetitive in the manifest world and does it say anything at all about to the extent that such a claim can be made that to say anything at all about the ontology of the world.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Those are a lot of questions, but uh, I do think it's important to begin with defining our terms, at least in a way that allows us to proceed from there by correcting the definitions or looking at them from different angles. Sure. So for me, repetition primarily has to do first with the distinction that is well known in multiple fields between types and tokens. Mm -hmm. So we would think of the type, the number two and we can think of tokens of it in the number 22. There are two tokens of 2 in 22. So this distinction is important because we can now talk about repetitions. We can say that a repetition is when there is a type of which at one temporal interval a token is instantiated, and that at another temporal interval the same token of that type is instantiated. That's a repetition of the type in virtue of multiple tokens of that type over temporal intervals. So I like that definition of repetition. Uh, I think it helps us just capture two facets. One is the type level and one is the token level. And I think what's also important about this that touches more on issues in philosophy of mind. Could there be occasions when there's only one token of a type? There can be occasions when there's one token of a type, but then I question whether or not there can be a repetition. Yeah. Right. So there's, and that can be subtly unpacked in a couple of ways. It's It's very important to recognize that. So we might say that The repetition never actually occurs, although one token of the type has been instantiated. But it must be in principle possible for another token of that type to be instantiated. Were it to be impossible for another token of that type to be instantiated, then I wouldn't say that a repetition is permissible in that class, but nor would I say that there's actually a class there, because there's nothing, there's no more tokens of the type. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a mental component to this that's important. And I think this touches on the other part of where you were going uh, in terms of its relationship to our mind and reality. So there's recognition, Mm -hmm. very important. So for me to have another token of a type as a repetition, you might think in some sense that requires for me to recognize it as another token of that type.
0: Yeah, And that is
1: the second occurrence in your right, mind. And also just the general idea of there being recognitional capacities of the human mind that allow us to say that there is a repetition
0: occurring. Right? And is that is that repetition of identity or similarity alone? Does so I think
1: thing? it's mostly a repetition of um, similarity. And I think this is actually perhaps one of the most oldest questions in philosophy, both in The ancient Greek tradition and the ancient Indian tradition. There are various discussions of this sort of problem. It can be cut up in multiple different ways, but you're right. There is basically this sort of sense of recognizing something in virtue of which you could say that it's a repetition as opposed to a novel occurrence. And that repetition, in part, is related to the fact that you are capturing a similarity relation. That similarity relation captures the type. So, I now recognize another cow in the forest, and that cow is a recognition in virtue of the type. Is that
0: straightforward, this recognition business? Like, how does it happen? No, I think there are probably multiple theories, both in cognitive
1: science and in the philosophy of Indian and Greek cultures that discusses how recognition occurs in the mind and what is really being done in recognition. But, um, But it seems to be important for that other part of the question you're asking, which has to do with the relationship between us and the world and the reality of repetition right so are these self-imposed through the mind or are we picking up on objective features of the world that question is related in part to what you think your theory of
0: recognition is interesting or could they why don't we jump to your world and um, i don't know whether the mind comes in at all but to the extent that you think of processes algorithms compositions of different kinds of functions and so on, the kind of things that you deal with in your world uh, what's what's the balance that the word repetition takes in your context and uh, what are what are one of the deep ideas there and we'll see how we link it up with the others.
2: So there are uh, various ways that repetitions the notion of repetition uh, comes in computer science mm-hmm. and also discrete mathematics, which are sort of very intimately connected, computer science, particularly theoretical computer science and discrete mathematics. And repetitions, this notion occurs. Uh, I, I will not try to define it precisely. I'll try to keep it loose sure, and uh, still see how much sense we can make. So because, you know, Anand spoke about recognition, this was not in the order in which I was thinking of saying, but <laughs>
0: you know,
2: there's a little change in my plans. So let's try to understand the problem or the difficulty of recognizing repetitions by machines. Right. right? So let's take a simple example. The simplest machine that one can think of in computer science lingo is called a finite state machine, which is you have a finite fixed memory, okay? And uh, you're being given a long string and you have to recognize if the string has a certain pattern.
0: Right.
2: Since we are talking about repetitions, let me say the very dumb thing, which is, suppose my alphabet is composed of two symbols, zero and one, and I want to see if the string is just a repetition of all ones. No zero ever occurred. This can be done very easily by a finite state machine because, you know, the machine has a state of having seen only one so far and another state of saying, no, no, I saw a zero. And if you just keep pumping in once, it'll stay in that state, looping back, reading one symbol at a time, looping back. If it ever sees a zero, it goes off to the state and says, I'm never going to accept the string. I recognized a zero being coming my way. And so this is very simple to recognize, okay? So this kind of repetition is recognizable by the simplest of machine, which we call finite state machines and these languages uh, which can be recognized by these machines are called regular languages in computer science but you know then there are certain other kinds of repetitions you might ask what cannot be recognized and here's a repetition where i say that the string must contain a repetition of ones followed by a repetition of zeros and the number of ones and the number of zeros should exactly match So, for instance, it could have 100 ones followed by 100 zeros, that's valid. But if you had anything else like, you know, 99 ones followed by 100 zeros, that's not valid. Or you had ones and zeros being interleaved, that's not valid. Now, it turns out this is a canonical example of something which cannot be recognized by a finite state machine.
0: Is that because it lacks memory or?
2: It lacks, you're very right it lacks the idea or the power of counting. Mm -hmm. So if I had said that there has to be a certain number of ones, I don't specify how many repetitions of one, followed by some repetitions of zero, that can be recognized. But if you want to say, I would like to have the number of ones that occur and the number of zeros that occur must exactly match, then this machine with a finite number of states Where the number of states, the memory states in the machine, is independent of the length of the string, this cannot be recognized. Why? Well, because you'd run out of state. Because at some point, you will loop back. In fact, it's very interesting. Uh, I I don't want to go completely formal, but I just want to give you an idea. The way you'd prove that this is undoable is an argument involving repetition. Mm -hmm. And the argument involving repetition is the following roughly that imagine you built a machine and you're claiming that this can do this. Mm -hmm. But your machine has to have a finite number of states. Mm -hmm. And if I pump in a long word, which is composing entirely of, let's say, ones, and the number of ones is more than the number of states, then this machine, as it's toggling between states, it must come back to repeat one of the states that it has seen. As soon as it comes back to the state, It's a Markovian process. It completely forgets. Yeah? It can't remember. As long as it was hopping to different states, it was having a memory of how many ones it saw.
0: But is this doable if you had an upper bound of the number of ones or zeros? If you said, okay, 100
2: ones or 100 zeros, then then it's easily doable? Then it's easily doable, meaning you would design a machine that couldn't recognize exactly that string. But if I gave you... No, but all
0: the way from 0 to 100, number of ones or zeros, That if you put an upper bound, of course, the lower bound is always zero in an instance like this.
2: But, you know, I mean, uh, when you build programs, you do not say, I'm going to build a program that can only look at this length. Of course, of course,
0: of course, of course. It has to,
2: it doesn't know a priori. Of course. So it has to work on any data. Here, the data is a string. of of arbitrary length.
0: I think when was trying to understand what is the primary constraint, and the primary constraint seems to be...
2: The the inability to count of a certain type. Uh, Of course, it can count, uh, you know, if I were to say, um, you know, I should have an odd number of ones and an even number of zeros in the string, this can be done. I'm not telling you how long my word is going to be the long the word could be arbitrary long but i am just telling you when i say when you see the end of the word marker the machine should recognize or identify correctly if it has seen an odd number of ones and an even number of zeros yeah this a machine can do yeah odd odd repetitions of one if you if you will simply because you know all you need to remember whenever you see a one have i gone to odd to even or even to odd right yeah. just two states so yeah. a finite state can do it yeah. okay so that's an example. Now you may ask, what kind of machine? So as uh, in computer science, we're interested in understanding how complex is a repetition? So this machine is already fumbles for recognizing languages of the type that I said, where you have n number of ones followed by n number of zeros and you vary n. So what's the complexity of understanding this language? There's something called you know, context-free grammars or these are also called in my world, push-down automaton. Right. You have a machine where it's got finite state because a program has to be finitary. So the number of states, you're always going to keep it finite, but it's got a little bit of more dynamic memory. And how do we model that? Well, we say we have a stack, yeah? And the machine is able to do the following. It reads a symbol of the tape. It pushes thing onto the stack. And then again, goes on, reads it, and then pushes on. And at some point, depending on which state it is, what symbol it's reading, it's also able to pop things off the stack. But it's a stack. So whatever, at any point, as a stack is filled, all that is visible to the machine is the top of the stack. Things buried inside are not visible. If you have such a stack, then you can recognize such repetitions. If you have n number of ones and n number of zeros, it's a very simple example, all you need to do is the following. You have a finite state, just let's say two states, or very few states. As long as it sees once, the machine just pushes this onto the stack, one at a time. Then the first zero that it sees, well, it starts now popping off from the stack, and it can keep doing this, and if it sees the zero, and it's still continuing to see the zero, but it's already hit the bottom of the stack, it knows well, then the number of ones must have been not adequate. It must have been less than the number of zeros. Or if it pops off and the zeros have ended, the end of word marker has come and it still sees a one left of the stack, then it understands well the number of zeros were fewer than the number of ones. So having available uh, this uh, stack makes it very handy to understand these repetitions. My last point in this round is let's now take a third repetition, which is if I say Let's say I augment my alphabet with zero, one, and two. The symbols are now zero, one, and two. I treat them as symbols, and now I want to say, I should have repetitions of zero, n, where n varies as before, then ones, and then twos. Each of them, same number. Now if you think about it, there seems no way now to use even a stack to do this. Right. Yeah. Because if you pop it off, then everything is gone. How do you now count the twos? You can't have two stacks. Well, very good question. If you have two stacks, then it's the same as the power of what we call Turing machines Mm. or full-fledged computing. Mm. Okay. Uh, I'm sure Anand would recognize this. uh, uh, Turing, we uh, call him a computer scientist. You know, Turing was a really a genius spread across the spectrum. Anand calls him a philosopher. Anand calls him a philosopher.
0: Biologists call him a biologist. Biologist.
2: He wrote a book on simplifying the understanding of the theory of relativity, which had come out just a time. So physicists would call him a theoretical physicist. So He was a veritable genius. <laughs> and anyway, so he invented this Turing machine, which is what is our computational model today. We theoretical computer scientists believe that the Turing machine is the ultimate model of physically realizable computation, computation that is anchored in the laws of physics. We believe anything that's doable there can be done by a Turing machine and vice versa, okay? So the two-stack thing, you could augment it, it is a non-trivial theorem to show that a two-stack machine and a Turing machine have same power. Interesting. In a two-stack machine, and therefore in a Turing machine, you can recognize such repetitions. So what I wanted to say is, this simple word repetition of different types Takes you to diff- and the effort to understand, recognize those repetitions takes you from the simplest model of computing, namely regular languages, then to context free languages, and then all the way to Turing recognizable languages.
0: And this is just for three symbols. Just for, th-
2: just for three symbols.
0: Yes, yeah, crazy. Three kinds
2: of repetition. Crazy. And interestingly, the proof, the argument to show that the repetition of the second kind, which is zero to the n, one to the n, or one to the n, zero to the n, yeah, languages of this kind, why is it not doable by, you know, a, a one-stack machine, pushdown automaton? In theoretical computer science, uh, you know, much inspired by mathematicians, we like to prove things. And the proof, the argument, why is it, what is it that it's not able to do, will again boil down to an argument of repetition. Mm. If you have time, we'll come back to it. This argument is called the pigeonhole principle. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. It's a, it's a very simple idea of repetition. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of interesting that, you know, it's repetitions that we're trying to understand and we are trying to... And Especially end up pigeonhole proving.
0: principle is so fundamental. So it's so amazing fundamental, how it can so be... So fundamental, involved. I think... Why don't we travel to the world of music? Uh, yes, which, I know. Which, I was which part how to. <laughs> You don't need to link it to pigeonhole principle, but why... Well, what's the idea of repetition there? And of course, the word composition lives in your world.
3: Um, yes, I was just thinking, I was just trying to think about it because uh, do we use the term repetition in music at all? We we'll probably
0: use rhythm and maybe it's yes, some kind exactly, of pattern. Yes, exactly. That's
3: what I'm saying. We're going yeah. to use patterns or rhythm. Uh, so we don't use the term repetition. And very simply, you need to repeat because otherwise you will just forget. Because, you know, simply that you, uh, in say a, a musical phrase uh, which occurs over time, it's happening through time. So it's a temporal process. And then if you keep on listening to it, then, you know, it just after a point there'll be no pattern at all. So you need to come back. And this had been structured in all kinds of musics. I mean, both, say, South Asian music or Indian music, particularly, and certainly in Western music, in Western classical music where the structure of the composition is very strongly related to, say, theme and variation, or you have the leitmotif, or you have the rondo. In the Indian raga system, you have the opening phrase, or what we call the first part of the composition, which is the mukhra, which is that you keep on coming back again and again. Or you could even think of the tonic, the sa, which is so fundamental. Uh, it it's constantly being referred to, so there you move away from sa, then you come back again. You know, so
0: why do you come back to sa?
3: That is the interesting thing. It depends. In other kinds of music, you don't. I mean, in the Western classical tradition, you don't. You can change keys actually. Mm. But in in the Hindustani tradition, sa is seen as the whole, fixed point. Yes, yeah. it is seen as the fixed point. You move either you you establish it, then you move away, and then you come back again. It's constantly being, being referred to, and sometimes in ragas. And you, this is
0: just some kind of musical convention, or like what's the no, what's the I don't exercise? think so.
3: It is, of course, it's convention. I mean, that's how you learn it. But there is some kind of underlying idea about it, which is that first of all, the sa is not fixed. It's any note can be the sa when you start singing in Hindustani tradition. Right, and usually, if you hear Hindustani musicians talking about it, I say Hindustani musicians because I don't know much about the Carnatic music practice, sure. but I think it could—it won't be very different. And the whole idea is that uh, sa helps you to charge your inner consciousness. There's some kind of meditative idea that you dwell on the note, and once that's charged, it resonates, and then you know you bring out your variations. So, so it's a kind of consciousness-raising uh, exercise, you know. It's if, if I won't use the word exercise, really, that would be putting it a bit crudely, but that's how it is. So you have musicians who will tell you that, you know, my ustad made me uh, sort of practice the Sa for two years, even before he taught me, a single composition. Because if you don't get it right, then you just can't sing anything, right? But uh, that's, of course, the ideal state. It's kind of... Uh, but there is a larger, uh, the larger principle, I think, is... Is there such a thing as non-repetitive music? I don't know about it. Because if I say that if it becomes non-repetitive music, then what it would be is that you would have discrete acoustical events. Yeah. Right? In that in case, that, it wouldn't be music.
0: It's not a composition.
3: Yeah. It, it Well, you know, in Hindustani music, we don't have a Com- composition yeah, like that. But yeah. I, what I'm saying, then it wouldn't be music. You know, you have discrete. So
0: what people... So what is music?
3: Well, that's a difficult question to answer. But well, it's like this. If you think of it, various kinds. If you think of it uh, in temporal terms, then it's really about uh, the manifestation of, uh, you know, it's time uh, sort of eventuating, you know, in some senses. There is a kind of logic in which it comes to fruition,
0: right? So some kind of resolution. Yes,
3: yes. So that, that is what really music would be, you know, in, in some senses. So it is certainly very strongly tied to temporality, but that's not the only way to study it. I mean, it's kind of, you know, people now even talk about space in music and so on and so forth, but that's a bit it's different. But there is a aesthetic principle which is, uh, which is uh, puzzling. It puzzles people, but musicians talk about it all the time that, uh, the return uh, to a phrase or a note or a theme, uh, the second time round it happens, the third time round it happens, makes it more pleasurable. Right? And that is something, uh, is absolutely germane to uh, to, to music, certainly.
0: Uh, you probably don't think of this, Anand. Why do you think this happens? This business of repetition, Affording pleasure. Why does it become a kind of aesthetic experience? Uh, what do you think is going on? Is, it, is, is, is memory somehow implicated somewhere? Is it a form of knowledge and therefore reaffirmation? What is it? Uh, well, I would approach it by looking at two distinct
1: aspects. Hmm. The token that is repeated having an aesthetic property mm-hmm. and the repetition of the token either amplifying or doing some other relational property to the token. So, for example, it could be the case that there is a very deep neurological explanation about why, for example, minor key songs evoke certain types of moods and major key songs evoke other types of moods. It's not universally true that they only evoke those moods, but there is a tendency, at least in Western music, to think that certain sort of minor keys evoke certain sort of sullen, melancholic moods, and major keys evoke certain sort of
0: happy So you're moods. saying you're saying it's not um there is some neurology, some neuroanatomical basis I, I mean, I don't there. think
1: it's implausible to think that there is some deep connection between the tone, the sound of D minor, the chord, uh, and some sense for us because of the resonance of D minor. And then the repetition aspect of it that I think is important is that by having the certain feeling that comes with D minor, repeating it in different ways, or staying within the scale of a minor scale based in D, you get some sort of evocation of sentiments and emotions. So there is a deep connection in the philosophy of emotions with the philosophy of music. Some people think that there's a very strong connection between the resonation of the sounds and certain emotional states. So I would think that's part of the explanation. But the important part that I'm trying to put attention on is that in the question, we should distinguish between what the repetition does and what the individual instance does, because okay. there's aesthetic or non-aesthetic pleasure in the first case. So there are notes that uh, or chords that can be played that are highly dissonant, where the single occurrence of it will not evoke any aesthetic pleasure However, the repetition of it can evoke a different change in your aesthetic level towards it. While the first occurrence really is shocking and jarring, the 15th occurrence in a certain temporal pattern of rhythm can do something very different to you. There are genres of music that try to exploit the kind of pattern dependence of consonants and dissonance, right? And then there are other cases where the aesthetic pleasure will kind of saturate over time and therefore you won't gain as much pleasure the repetition of it over time. I think those Mm. two properties can happen. So I would definitely distinguish between the initial token having some quality that's valenced, positive or negative in terms of aesthetic pleasure, and then what the repetition can do with it. And of course, the repetition itself can take various forms. I can repeat it every eighth note. I can repeat it in a cycle, in different cycles, and those can change the way in which uh, the repetition affects. But I think stuff. the
0: idea of saturation is a very interesting one. There's a way in which it could give you pleasure, but there's probably a kind of peaking point. And right, and so
1: I think we should explore that in a very general thing. Like, we already know from studying economics that there are lots of things that occur with yeah. saturation effects.
0: Or diminishing Every, returns, as they call it. I'm, well, sure, yeah.
1: but, but in, in general, the, va- the example I use in class a lot, which is very nice, is ice cream. Yeah. I mean, you might love chocolate ice cream, but after the millionth lick, I'm not sure it's in the same temporal period doing the same thing for you. I think it's the third lick which is the best. (laughs) (laughs) After that, it goes
3: downhill. In terms of (laughs) saturation, I would be interested to know because in music, this is the thing that, you know, you listen to, say, a composition or a raga Mm -hmm. and uh, it's the same rag. Uh, You listen to it a hundred times. It's still not saturated.
0: But does it hold for all ragas? Uh,
3: Well, I mean, yes, in some senses. And first of all, you know, uh, of course, some of the responses are conditioned, you know, because so we know, so and so, uh, so Anand talked about, you know, that a key, a minor key means, say, sadness or something. I mean, we know we can make an argument that this is something which has come from some kind of well. Cultural attitudes to that kind of sound. So we know ragas have moods, for instance. There's a cultural right? aspect as opposed there's to. There's a cultural aspect. and uh, But behind that is a. So, for instance, we can ask this question that, you know, is any combination of notes a rag? It could be theoretically. But no, the argument would be that does that combination of notes produce a mood? Right? Uh, if it does... So why aren't
0: there an infinite number of ragas?
3: So the point is then that the what determines the mood is then... Of course, raga is more than just producing a mood. There uh, are you, accents... You're already and, talking
0: about pigeonhole principles. Yes. Ah. So
3: exactly. No, there is a phrase. There is a, you know, there are particular accents and so on and so forth. But the fact is that over...
0: So there you know, is a finite number of moods? There are, well, I don't think because, so. Because I don't then think that's so. the limiting factor to the number of, let's you, say, the more popularly ragas. You will be surprised
3: that uh, in the 1880s, Rabindranath Tagore, who was 20 years old, wrote up essay, which is a classic called Shongi To Bhav, which mm. means music and emotions or moods. And he says the problem with uh, hackneyed music is that it thinks there are only limited moods I want to compose which has which will really explore all kinds of emotions and moods right so music gives me that possibility to do it but
0: but as is that as, do you huh? think there's a kind of mapping uh, between I don't know a number of basic moods and emotions and the number of somewhat compound things and ragas which map a little bit more directly and Yeah, so, on. so
3: we so, have what we call the Sandhi Prakash ragas which are you know between the morning and the evening and whatever yeah, or evening and night and so on and so forth so the more complex ragas are actually there because then you can show a range of uh, moods there you know because it's grey it's really grey area it still follows some convention but it's kind of uh, it's definitely there but the puzzle uh, how, is this how, how
0: huh? many ragas are there and let's say in in Hindustani the music. I'm yeah, there would
3: be what? About maybe 200 ragas, but maybe 50 are sung, I think. You know, really. But theoretically, the numbers are infinite. You know, I mean.
0: But uh, which is why uh, in the living real world, there isn't an infinite number of ragas. You could come up with anything.
3: Yeah, and also but, ragas fade, you know. So, I've you know, if you look at the Ragamala paintings, we have mentions of ragas. Nobody remembers what these ragas are. And this the ragas, three four hundred years ago. Yeah, three four hundred years ago. And the ragas that we sing today, we are not very sure the they have the same notes as the one which were mentioned two three hundred. No, I years think ago. a lot
0: of people talk about this in film theory. The mm. things, the kind of things that would produce pathos in the late nineteenth century are like weird now. You don't feel anything. Yes, exactly. Look at them. <laughs> yes, That's, yes, yes, yes. So yeah, there is a kind of there's a kind of embeddedness, or grounding to the times or whatever, which mm. is interesting. I think I think for me at least that's the that's an instantiation of pigeonhole principle but why don't we go there which you wanted to talk about and and how that links to uh uh both composition and repetitiveness
2: yeah so the pigeonhole principle being very simple uh i mean the pigeonhole principle just states an obvious uh, tautology which is the following that uh, you know if you have N pigeons wanting to sit in M holes where N is a large number, M is a small number, M is just smaller than N, let's say N minus one, just one fewer, then there's got to be two pigeons sitting in a hole. There cannot be because there's not enough room. Now, this sounds, at least when I was first told, this sounds like, I mean, okay, I mean, what good is this? Are there many
0: ragas for the same mood? Or same, I mean, not same, identical similarity. I think we're dealing with words here. But well, many ragas of the same mood. For corresponding to... I mean, for,
3: that, well, uh, not really. But yes, I mean, in a sense that you could say, if not same mood, certainly the same sort of season or something, you know. I mean, that you could possibly say that if it's Basant, then you have these five ragas. And they would be equally say. popular? Popular? Oh, they yes, they late. would be. They would be pop. Not really. Not in performance. Uh, so some ragas don't sing. So, for instance, say people, you know, you are only likely to listen to some ragas only because there is a time theory of ragas also. So, if if you mean popular, now we only listen to music for an evening concert. So you are unlikely to hear them. Right. That doesn't mean it's not popular, but it would be sung. But as a result, what happens is some things just get left out of the, of the repertoire. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah sorry i interrupted yeah. your code oh, no that's yeah. fine mm. that's fine i mean actually something is i mean the human brain is after all if it can be modeled yeah as a as a machine mm. it has finite memory and you know finite number of states so eventually you know things have to repeat yeah i mean just as in the case of any finitary procedure has to repeat itself and uh, this is what the pigeonhole principle i mean of course i'm sort of watering down many things, but the pigeonhole principle is trying to say. And it has, in mathematics, it has very uh, striking consequences, far-reaching, this very simple principle. You know, in some sense, the second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy of the universe is increasing. It has to increase. Yeah. Right? And it wouldn't be wrong to roughly, you know, identify large entropy with larger chaos, larger lack of order right but you know when we try to sort of formalize this in mathematics we find that it's very hard to keep chaos there's always order emerging in chaos patterns emerging in chaos especially right?
0: with scale yes
2: exactly especially with scaling yeah exactly and this is because i think the you know the pigeonhole principle is at work uh, for example here's a very simple combinatorial puzzle that if you go to a party of 6 people there's always going to be either three of them who know each other or three of them who do not know each other. No pair of them knows each other, okay? You cannot avoid that. And this you can, I mean, if you sit down for a while and work out the cases, I'm sure every one of us can figure this out. But this is, if you scale it up, what it's saying is that, you know, if you go to a party of N people, eh, I mean, and you can arrange who knows each other, you can sort of adversarially try to create this graph of relationship to at your will. But no matter what you do, there's always going to be either a non-trivial collection of people who form a clique by knowing each of them. Each one of them knows the other person. Or you will find sort of an anti-clique where none of them know each other. No matter how you, the adversary, you got take your time, come up with this graph of relationship. There's always going to hap- this is going to happen. More quantitatively, if you're interested, this is like uh, if you have n people, roughly about logarithmic of n. Log n. Log n. Number of people will either form a clique.
0: This is base 10 log. Uh,
2: no, I'm here t- talking about base 2, but that doesn't matter. It's just right. a simple multiplicative factor, right? Right. Uh, so you're all either going to get a log n number of people who form a clique. Do they all know each other? Or they don't. And, you know, this, I mean, it is pretty striking, and you can prove it, you can explain it, just because of the pigeonhole principle, the simple thing that I just said. You're repeatedly applying in a recursive fashion, you can say that this thing has to come out. What's more puzzling, and which might be... Has so, been... so,
0: so the explanation for this is the pigeonhole principle. Absolutely. But why does pigeonhole principle... Of course, I think the basic example of...
2: Why does it work? Yeah, let me try to give you an explanation. Let's see if it works.
0: That's crazy.
2: That's crazy. But let me try to give you an explanation. So imagine what is it saying? Sort of, uh, it's saying you know you take this bunch of people and you draw an imaginary line between a pair of person, right? And you color this line by either a red or a blue. Red means they know each other. Blue means they don't know each other. Yeah. So if I've got n people there are, you know, n choose two pairs of lines between any, and an adversary is coloring them by red or blue. So it's it's called a two-coloring the edges, right? And what I'm saying is either there will be a large clique of blue edges, you know, a bunch of people, all of whose edges between themselves are colored blue, or they will be red. Why does that happen? Well, it happens, and the pigeonhole principle is in action in this way, is in the following you take the first person, and in this first person, look at his graph of all the people that are you know, connected to him, and the adversary has colored them in some way. But again, the pre general principles says that at least half the people have been colored in the same way, half the edges, right? So you have this first person, There are 9 let's say there were 100 people, so there were 99 people yeah, now yeah, remaining.
0: Yeah, no, I know exactly where you're going. And
2: you, you have at least half of them, but they are all colored blue with this respect to this person,
0: or red. It's this thing where if you go to a party with like 40 people, mm-hmm. you can be 50% sure or whatever, 98% sure that you share a birthday with at least one person. Something. They're like also that. the yeah.
2: pigeonhole principle, as I said, there's no getting away from the pigeonhole principle. That's crazy. <laughs> They're also the pigeonhole principle is at work, but in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here, what I'm saying is you have at least half the people who are colored, you know, the same way. So go to the larger half. Okay. So now you've got this larger half are all colored the same way. And let's say they are all colored blue. Then among the remaining people, take one person out and think of the rest of the people and say, how are they colored with respect to this person? Again, at least half of the remaining would be colored in the same way, take that half. Maybe now they're colored all, this guy was colored red, this guy will be colored blue, and so on. And if the collection is large, you can go on for a long time and you're coloring each person either red or blue. And now you apply the pigeonhole principle one final time. Of these people, at least half of them must be colored the same way. Yeah. Right? So take that set of people and now if you think out what happened, let's say they all are colored blue, that means they all of these people don't know each either other. Either
0: they're all known or all unknown. No, if it
2: was colored blue, then they were they're all not known, known. each other. Not known each other. Yeah. I said red. And if they were all colored red, they will all know each other. Yeah. So this is exactly, so I applied the pigeonhole principle in two ways, many, many times, and I get this thing. So this seems to be suggesting that, you know, I mean, you can't have completely random way of doing things. There will always be a, a pattern that emerges. This is the pattern that has to emerge. There's no escaping that. An interesting thing here is the following, is that, although we know that this thing has to emerge mathematicians have worked out when does order emerge order of this time how large does the system need to be before order has to emerge and they can prove that until that time until the system becomes that large you can keep the pattern that you are trying to avoid you can avoid that but if you want to find a procedure to avoid this it's very difficult one of the deepest series of problems in mathematics is called explicit constructions which are basically trying to create things which are repetition free and although we know until you hit a certain scale you can keep things repetition free we just don't know how to do it yeah and you know all sorts of deep mysteries is going on around here sort of does this
0: depend on the type of domain
2: um well it certainly depends on the type of pattern that you're trying to avoid yeah but you know these are called uh, Ramsey graphs Frank Plumpton Ramsey was a logician who toyed with these things and these are called Ramsey graphs and you want to sort of create these graphs which do not have a large clique or an anti-clique and it seems very difficult although you know by an existential argument that such things ought to exist until the graph becomes too large then, of course, you can't avoid it. What
0: do you think is going on, Anand? Like, the pigeon principle, does it say anything? Like, is there anything ontological here? Um, so one thought I had that was coming up over and over again
1: is, I think we should clarify the distinction between repetition and pattern. Hmm. And we should probably consider the relationship between pattern and order. So I think maybe some of the suggestions that were being made speak to the fact that we can't escape a certain type of order re-emerging. I'm not sure what the relationship is, though, between a pattern and an order, unless, of course, something's being a pattern. Is it being ordered? And then, of course, there can be the question I think you're pointing to about whether or not the pattern is something we recognize as a pattern, but doesn't exist objectively independent of our way of seeing things, and what that has to do with the question of order. So I typically feel that, like, repetition... And pattern are very core ideas that can sometimes come apart. Like, it seems to me like if X is a pattern, then X is a repetition. And the other conditional, if X is a repetition, then there must be a pattern. Are two questions that we should be looking to carefully cut apart. Um, Yeah, so here's a very interesting example. Can you have a pattern, going back to actually to the very first question you asked me, Can you have a pattern in a single instance of something you're looking at, for example, but that token as a type never occurs again or could not occur again, right? So what is it to recognize something as a pattern might require that that pattern has an internal structure that occurs once and then occurs again, such that it becomes a pattern in virtue of its repetition? Uh, How does one
0: know that a pattern is singular?
1: That that's, so. I think that's the. the how how doesn't s- prove that? Well, in any array, let's say we're looking at an array of dots, for example, there could be, without looking at it as a repetition, there can be a number of things I could say is a pattern that's present in the array. But it would be only until I look at another array that I can say that now we have a pattern because something is repeated from the first array. So that's uh, so
0: in an infinitely long string of let's say zeros and ones yeah. to go to the so if one just came up with a pattern of anything like zero one zero zero or zero, whatever any one pattern right. of string length m yeah um, is there any way and in, if if that string length is infinite then any pattern would reoc- reoccur you, you know what I wouldn't I mean? think
1: so I wouldn't think so I think the first question you have to ask is what is it to recognize a pattern in a string right and if it's an infinite in length this compli- makes this very complex question because it's infinite length. So for any subset, I may say that there's a pattern that recurs at multiple nodes in the infinite series, but I can't... Um, I mean, I-, I would have thought one thing to discuss here is the decimal expansion of pi. Isn't that pattern-free from what we understand so far?
2: Uh, well, uh, it's... it's it's. We haven't completed I, I, the I, com- I mean, yet. you know, this is a good question because it takes you to the core of... Say, defining what a pattern is, right? right? So uh, if you look at the decimal expansion of pi and yeah. uh, look at an infinite, non-terminating thing, I mean, it's difficult to predict what is to come next, yeah? In that sense, it is pattern-free, Yes. yeah? Uh, uh, it, now I'm tying the definition yeah. to the ability of predicting. But what do I mean by that? If you dig a little deeper, when I say it's difficult to predict, well, it's actually absolutely predictable.
0: Because it's because seven. Yeah. Because there's a,
2: a procedure. Yeah, there's right. an algorithm yeah. which yeah. says if you if you if you tell me the ith digit, what is it? It's going to take time. So, you know what may Because be, so your
0: prediction is the same as calculation.
2: You didn't. Well, you you, know, you know the function. I mean, do, I, do you, know, do you as, think, as uh, one of our giants, Avi Wigderson said, randomness lies in the eyes of the beholder.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, just as
2: beauty does, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I like really obvious the statement because it's a very deep statement because it says, you know, what appears to you a random may not appear random to somebody who has, you know, a higher computational power.
0: Well, there would be kinds of music which to my mind was like... I, that's I'm a very not, old uh, comment, actually. I think just a to say, I
1: mean, the classical debate about the realism of similarity in the universe Hmm. between the Buddhists and the Prabhakarama Mamsas is precisely on this point. The Buddhists will basically be saying the eye of the beholder thing. The patterns are in us as recognitional capacities. But there is nothing out there that is absolutely the pattern that is free of any mind. So higher computational power, would the Buddhists would say, is just another mind of a different kind, seeing a pattern where another type of mind couldn't see it.
0: So Anand, there is no such thing as simple or complex pattern? No, the, I think the things which would have take more cognitive load, more compute, or uh, whatever, no, so more the, complex functions. The issue
1: here is, is not that those properties don't exist as ways of grading different minds. It's that saying that independent of a mind, the eye of the beholder comment, you don't have this issue of what is the objective cognitive load, for example, or what is objectively more complex. So other theorists in the ancient Indian philosophical would deny that and say that similarity is an absolute category. In reality and similarities under which patterns are to be understood and which repetitions are we see it as a pattern because it was the second token of something that occurred before and it was similar to the first token under a given type.
0: But there are deeper kinds of similarity, uh, like analogical ones, or which is like not looking at a car and saying, okay, this looks like this other cow I saw three years ago. Sure, but, but, but
1: analogies are also done on the fact that there's a similarity relation. Of course. Of course, which we analogically reason. I think you meant that there's a different kind of similarity relation involved in those cases yes. than in, for example, perceptual pattern. Record. I think that's, I don't know if they're Deeper in any sense, but maybe there is but, something but to be you, there. But you
0: would call the ability to, I don't know if using the word recognizes right, but the ability to have knowledge of similarity as being a different faculty altogether? I think, uh, I don't really have a view on that specific one, but I can yeah, tell yeah, you know, this for sure. We're not putting you in one camp or the, the so, other. So uh,
1: <laughs> the Prabhakarama Imamsa definitely defended the view that in order to have knowledge of similarity as a category independent from any other category, in ontology, there had to be a separate faculty. This is called Upamana Pramana. Upamana is the faculty for knowing comparison, fundamental similarity in the world, and they theorized that. The Buddhists strongly disagreed with them. The Nyaya Vaisheshikas agreed with the Prabhakarma Mamsa to a certain degree. No, what would the Buddhists say? The Buddhists would hold the the sort of eye of the beholder thing that our minds come along with certain sort of things that we are sort of inherently sort of classifying in virtue of and those things help us see patterns in reality so but those, a but those patterns those things i was thinking <laughs> those patterns aren't there independently of our mind and here's a very good example of how strong this view is so the classical sort of thing under which pattern recognition occurs is when we see two particulars or two instances of a universal. So the universal cowness, and then we see one cow there, and we see one cow there, spatially distinct from one another and individuated by that property, though temporally co-present. Uh, so the, the Buddhists would say there is no common property that is had across all particular instances of a cow. Rather, there's this other thing called apoha, which is the way in which these two things fall under cow, the universal because they're not, not cows. So they use a very interesting type of hmm. double negation hmm. where the external negation and the internal negation function in different ways. And what they're saying well, is so that,
0: many things are not, not cows. That's right. But so the things, that's, but,
1: but you're now understanding infinite. <laughs> <set>? <laughs> so <laughs> many, but remember here, not, not cows has to be understood in a very specific way because not, not in classical negation is just going to be the same as P. Not, not P is the same as P. And uh, not-not-cow is not saying the same as not-not-p, therefore-p. Because yeah. that's classical negation in both cases. So I think it's, it's very interesting what the Apoa theory is. But there is a very important connection to the question of similarity and pattern recognition. So they, but many Buddhists would say the pattern recognition of the second instance of a cow as falling under the type cowness, given the first instance you saw, is not to show that there's any objective similarity or universals out there in the external world. Rather, it's a classifying tendency of us to put things under one thing because they're not, not different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the idea. Very technical to figure out exactly what they mean. But the other schools will go the other way. They will say, hey, there's something out there called Kaunas, and we are picking up. It's a bit fuzzy. It's not so deterministic. You So you could use a fuzzy logic to model it, um, But actually, what most people who work on this specific theory have realized is that the Buddhists aren't really making a mathematical slash logical claim. They're actually making something about the cognitive understanding of how the mind works in terms of grouping things. So keep one thing in mind that could be very useful here is that we tend to learn by seeing things not all at once, but over time. Mm. And what we see, our mind has to operate on in the first instance and the second instance. And therefore, it kind of is funneling forward. Then, what you might learn after seeing A, B, and C in one order might be different from what he learns by seeing C, B, and A, the same set in a different order. This insight can help you see that maybe what they're talking about is more of a cognitive theory of what it is to track a universal and not a realist one under which you're picking up on something that's objectively real. So, in some cases, what we're sort of getting at when we talk about this idea of similarity is whether or not it's an objective feature in the world and how much of our minds import into the tracking of something being similar.
0: Where do you stand on this? Like to the extent... The so of-
1: I definitely do have a view on this. I take very seriously uh, a dictum from actually not an Indian philosopher, but a very famous uh, Western philosopher named Immanuel Kant. Mm. So Kant had a very interesting theory under which all objects to be an object for us requires that it satisfies two properties it is is spatially and temporally horizoned. So our outer experience is always temporally and spatially horizoned, and all our inner experience is temporally horizoned. Therefore, it follows that we have no conception of what an object is for us as human beings that isn't in space and time. So I think that basically whatever patterns are the patterns we pick up on, they will have a fundamental property for which we cannot talk about them being real in any sense for us other than that they're in space and time. That's like the limit of our capacity to understand what it is for something to be an object such that it could be repeated spatially and temporally in any sense. So I definitely think that. So the pure objective realist would say there are real objective repetitions in the world independent of our spatially and temporally understanding them because our mind does that to everything. Uh, I would fall more on the Kantian side of saying we really can't understand the question of what it is For anything to be an object, such that it could be repeated in the universe in some way, without it being spatially and temporal, so I fall a little bit on that side.
0: Where would you put music in this? Like, is there would would there be would there be such a thing as are there musical compositions in nature, independent of like human beings and so on? You know what I mean. Well, Uh,
3: that is there, but I was just to come back to the question of pattern and rhythm, it's very interesting that literary critics have actually written about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the most famous one is, uh, you know, the novelist A.M. Foster wrote a uh, book called *The Aspects of the Novel. One of his chapters is called, you know, Pattern and Rhythm. And it's, of course, much more subjective. And he looks at, you know, because the novel is an example of modern uh, subjectivities, you know, where you look at individual consciousness, you know, and so he makes the argument that Pattern can be boring, but rhythm can be interesting. And the example he gives is from Proust, you know, his great novel, you know. Yeah, Remembrance and of Things And then he passed. says, uh, and it's interesting, the examples are about music, right? And uh, the, so the in Proust's great novel, there is this thing about a sonata constantly recurring, right? And he says, this is a very subtle use of, there is an underlying r- rhythm, Right. Uh, and then he gives examples from other kinds of novels, which says that, you know, they use, they, they that's not rhythm. It's a kind of pattern. It's sort of mechanical. Now, the question is, what's what the it, difference? So that is the thing. It doesn't quite clarify. It's sort of subjective. But I think you can make a sense of it. I'll <laughs> hmm. tell you, it's very interesting because we have to, when you think about, say, the Raga, right? It has five notes. It's repeated. We mm-hmm. hear it a hundred times. We still like it. But why do we like it? What is is what is the underlying rhythm? To use say the Faustarian term, the I think the idea here is that uh, theory of the note or the sur is that it's a kind of space, and the way you determine the raga is how you accent that note,
2: uh-huh.
3: right? Uh, that is what will make a raga a raga, and it's like uh, when we speak, uh, when we uh, utter a word, it depends upon how we accent the word suppose i say i hate you or i say i actually hate you or something it, the same word can mean different things that's why the raga sung again and again will can sound different right yeah. so uh, so there is an underlying uh, rhythm here some kind this is what maybe foster would say there's something which is repeating but the accents are different so that seems uh why it still remains it seems as if it's a fresh creation you know every time so that i find quite fascinating and i'm just this also that's key very key interesting
0: key. like i mean yeah. like we've been using we've been speaking for i don't know several decades all of us and yeah. but we don't get bored of using or Articulating words, like forget music, like even exactly. in, the, in a With, manner of just speaking yeah, every day.
3: Yeah, yeah so uh, music is like that. I mean, if it's by the accent that you can tell. I mean, it's not the notes that make a raga. It's actually the accent to the notes that make a raga. That's why every time a new person or a same person sings it again, a little bit of change of the accent of the same note just changes. It just becomes something. It's almost as if it's a fresh creation. Uh, so that is the uh, the point about it. And, you know, and as I said, people have thought about it and literary critics certainly have done it. And of course, again, with music, of course, it is that in the novel, for instance, for to just come back to Foster, that it's a kind of mnemonic de- device. Music becomes, you know, it just triggers off things. And take it's a very really real, good
0: binding agent. It, it binding
3: just... agent, it triggers off things. So it's a new kind of experience. And remember that even rhythm, the tala, which is, uh, what is it? It's a kind of cycle beat, which which just goes on repeating and repeating and repeating. But what in music, what that kind of tala does, there is always a development, right? It's always a development. And even the structure of the tala is such that it's a sort of spiral downwards. You move from the sam to the khali, which is a negation of the beat. And then you move up again, Hmm. right? Hmm. So, uh, and then there is a resolution, uh, right? So, it's infinitely interesting. I mean, it's kind of, uh, now why it we find it pleasurable or interesting, for that we really need to look at cognition and, you know, the ha- hard wiring of the brain or like Chomsky said, you know, grammar is Im- embedded in the brain. Maybe music is, you know, I mean, in some senses. Yeah, some Oliver Sacks or somebody would say something Oliver like Sacks would say yeah. that, yes, that's right, yes.
0: Interesting. Mm. What is your uh, taking you a little bit away from theoretical computer science and to the extent that if one were to ask it to do a little bit of naive metaphysics of the world and the world is composed of a bunch of things, lots of things are going on, there are different kinds of processes. And if you had an algorithmic view of the world, there are a bunch of processes and surely that means that there's a kind of logic flow and kind of input going through a certain kind of process becoming an output and so on. Do you think if one were to have that algorithmic view of the world, there is like repetitions there? Are there algorithms that repeat? Are there processes that repeat in very different domains? Uh, Uh,
2: Yes. Uh, Are
0: there like fundamental uh, uh, or more basic algorithms that tend to recur across uh, the world?
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is what you learn in an algorithms course. There's, I mean, I wouldn't say... Well, often algorithms are sort of thought as a human artifact, right? I mean, uh, you know, something uh, that, uh, that uh, a human being came up with, right? Uh, but uh, I would like to view algorithms in a more broad sense. And, you know, w- how do birds flock Just as together?
0: computing has nothing to do with computer. So. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, I mean, theoretical computer science was invented before the first computer came up. Yeah, uh, I mean Turing was trying to solve a completely different problem, yeah. And so, in that sense, actually, theoretical computer science uh, presaged uh, the the invention of the modern computer. And in in a similar way, and I think uh, algorithms exist in nature as well. And uh, you know, some of the, I might not be exactly answering your question because your question was. Do algorithms repeat themselves? Yes, I, I would think so. I mean, just as the laws of physics are, I mean, a physicist would like to think that there are few simple laws. The fundamental whose, laws. Fundamental are laws. The fundamental various, algorithms. Yes, yes. So there are fundamental algorithms which, uh, which, uh, which are the heart of the matter, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, this would be uh, this would be my, if you will, the minimalist view in this case, and. Uh, yeah, and I'm pretty sure uh, th- this, is, uh, uh, this is the case. And even if it, this is not the case, this algorithmic view uh, uh, of, the, of this modern sciences is certainly bringing up deep questions. Uh, you know, for instance, if our current understanding uh, is complete, uh, at least as far as physics is concerned, like whether quantum mechanics gives uh, a satisfactory explanation of the universe you know and these questions are being sort of fundamentally put to test by the algorithmic view because often in this analysis what we are trying what we are seeing is that if quantum mechanics gives a correct description then there are certain problems which the human mind finds very hard if to solve and yet nature is solving how is it solving how can nature do that? Because you know, in a Turing machine, we don't seem to be able to do this in any way. I mean, of course, we don't have a proof, but it seems very hard. So either our model of algorithms is wrong, or the physicist's description of the universe is wrong. Okay, so so we certainly do believe that there are certain fundamental algorithms, and that and you know those algorithms should repeat in nature, and uh, you know uh, uh, either this belief is wrong or uh, the current description of the laws of physics is inadequate. I, I don't know if I have
0: yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anand, do you think of the world as composed, like coming together of different things right, right, all, right at the end, or coffee shop or something that comes right at the end, but do you think of this as, like what? what's the most fundamental fabric, I don't know, whatever your imagery is, one doesn't want to impose something in you but what's what's if you go all the way down to the turtles or wherever this is whatever the metaphorical turtle where does it start is it some kind of process is it some kind of matter is it something like what's going on like how how does the world come together your take i'm sure there are yeah. like millions of theories so <laughs> i tend to be more of a philosopher of
1: mind and an epistemologist and a logician than i am a metaphysician yeah but i definitely have some views here that i've expressed so i'll give a couple of them One, uh, I do think that there is a fundamental level. So there are people who are that is a fundamental level. Yes, I I work with some people who think that fundamentality is just a relative notion between any two levels of explanation. So you have this asymmetric relation that A is more fundamental than B when uh, facts about A are grounded in facts about B. Yeah. So we can say that there's a grounding explanation of fundamentality. But there is no fundamental level. There are some philosophers who spend their lifetime working on this problem. I think there is a fundamental level. I tend to be a substance person prior to processes. So that mm-hmm. is, I think, there is like some bedrock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, this is a problem because I tend to be someone who takes substance in sort of like the general thick sense of, I mean, this is boring, but to be in the sense of solidity. But if you're like a, you know, an it from bit person voting Jonathan Wheeler, John Wheeler, then that's challenged because then the fundamental nature seems to be something information. I, I know you're saying it challenges it because the information theoretic view is a non instantiated view. Information can be understood purely mathematically, and as a consequence, there's no substance. If you're saying it comes from bit, it is the solidity sort of view of substance, and bit is the information theorist. So if you have the John Wheeler view, uh, which a lot of philosophers explore too, that challenges my thing. So I'm I'm pro fundamentality, and I'm pro kind of solidity at the base. If you're non fundamentality theorist, which thinks there's an infinite levels of related uh, things, and you're also an it from bit theorist, that's the other side of the coin.
0: And of to- the first? layer for me you you somewhat solid fundamental okay, layer so where does that come from it starts so for from me there.
1: so for me there is an explanation of that phenomenon but it's not going to come from where you're thinking of sure it comes from an epistemic relation which i think helps us as human beings explain the phenomenon that we live with so for me it would be the case that there has to be some kind of awareness of the real world that can explain why we have hallucinations and illusions. So this idea is very well known in analytic philosophy as the asymmetry between error and truth. Hmm. In order for something to be understood as going wrong, it It must be the case that prior you had an understanding of it going correct. Yeah, But it doesn't go the other way around. Truth can happen just fine. Without error. This is called the asymmetric dependence of error on truth. In Indian philosophy, the Nyaya school articulated this as well. It's called the parasitism of error on truth. And the Nyayakas argued very early on against the Buddhists that in order to understand something as being a hallucination, it must have been the case that you had a veridical truth tracking experience. In the world first, because we explain hallucinatory experience. I'm seeing the rope as a snake, because sometime prior in my life, I was able to recognize ropes and snakes correctly, and then I was able to have an error. The world can't be a whole set of illusions and hallucinations, because those things are explained by something Can one true. have hallucinatory
0: yeah. experience without knowing it as one, in which case you okay. experience it as truth, uh, as opposed to... Okay, so there's a couple of things going on there that we yeah. can
1: cut up nicely in philosophy. So the internal subjective experience of... This is hallucinatory for me, or this is veridical for me, might not be something I can identify from the outside. Yeah. But we can then say still objectively, what makes sense? Can we really make sense of global illusionism? The whole world is an illusion, which some philosophers have proposed. I think the answer is absolutely not. And the reason why is very simply put in terms of this naiyaka view about the parasitism of error on truth. Which is also known as the asymmetric dependence of error on truth. So, those are the three things I would say. There is a fundamental level. I tend to be kind of a solidity, but I wouldn't push the solidity of tables and chairs point too much as much as the denial of the um, it from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the pure understanding that some people want to give that the universe is fundamentally mathematical is not something I'm particularly leaning
0: to. Are you, are
2: you a Vila kind of guy? Or Kodip? Well, I certainly believe that. Uh, the The physically knowable world is mathematical. There are f- fundamental deep mathematical principles at work uh, which make the world, or our perception, what is not knowable to me, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> is there life after death? doesn't help you with your tax returns. I don't know. <laughs> it's I, fine. I don't care. I effects
1: a tax returns.
0: So we'll end with you. Uh... Yeah, I was just thinking about the realm of music which is so you mentioned about
3: compositions so I was just thinking do we have compositions in Indian music I mean Raga music well yes in a sense when a little bit but not really we don't call them compositions right and it that's something to do with the way uh, our theoreticians have looked at the music because they see the Raga and the performance of the raga really is actual, actually, as an accumulation of meaning, mm. you know. So uh, now the question then arises. So again, is that, the,
0: uh, would huh. you say that the process is taking a little bit of a primacy? Yes, of course. Over.
3: Yeah. So it is about if you say it's a kind of you know your consciousness gets gets charged, right? And you so uh, uh, a greater uh, a very fine singer is somebody who can show you how to reach or you know can can charge can resonate that consciousness right to the listener in some senses in the case of uh say the i mean i mean these binaries are a little thing i mean this is sure. a legacy of our yeah. colonial upbringing yeah, western yeah. eastern and but western music has a composition right and there is a meaning attached meaning uh, and the thing is that the composer is trying to tell you something and the listener is trying to decode it or understand it, right? Yeah. So this is so there is a difference. There's between, transference going on. Uh, transference, and there is a so there is a category of the composer, and there is a category of the listener. Listener. So we assume that music has meaning, whatever the meaning is. Sure. We can you know debate about it. Indian music would say, "What if music has no meaning?" Right. I mean, it is void. And uh, what uh, this void comes from nature, uh, it's time, and uh, you know uh, we we are just trying to uh, understand it. That's what that's why we sing. So in some senses, music already exists. All I'm trying to do is approximate it. That's what the raga will do. So there's no composition, no authorship, right? So uh, so that is uh, you know that's how they will look at it. The point is then, uh, what is the difference between a performer? uh, So here, what I'm trying to tell you is that in the Indian music listening experience or in the Indian music experience, there is no division between the uh, performer and the listener. It's just that the the performer has been trained to raise the consciousness. The listener also... As has the it but yeah to, but no also has it but is not skilled enough yet but can become so yeah. it's a tr- journey together so this binary between uh, the composer and the listener is just not there so that makes it quite exciting in in some senses and because ragas have vague moods we can fight about that that this actually is not this mood yeah but what it allows the listener uh, uh, is that it that the listener can anticipate yeah. And it's a shared journey. So, that is quite something, you know, I mean... Um, so, so to that extent, it is approximate. I, do, I don't know, I was reading... Um, I'm now forgetting the name of the author. He's a book on mathematics and music. Uh, he's an American scholar. He mentioned somewhere that Aristotle said something like this, which is that the true uh, work of the s- sculptor is... Does the sculpture already exists in stone? Yeah. you just have to realize it it's the manifestation you know that is the important part of so something like that happens in Indian music you know in raga music particularly
0: interesting No mm. well, that's a good note to end on mm. thanks to all of you for making it and we look yeah. forward to having thank you, you, soon you. Again. thank you thank yeah. you for coming.